Rincewind didn't even consider looking inside. That'd mean his head would be outlined against the sky, a sure way of getting your body outlined against the dirt. A twig cracked behind him. He sighed and got down slowly, taking great care not to turn round. I surrender totally, he said, raising his hands. That's right, said a level voice. This is a crossbow, mate. Let's have a look at your ugly mug. Rincewind turned. There was no one behind him. Then he looked down. The crossbow was almost vertical. If it were fired, the bolt would go right up his nose. The dwarf, he said. You've got something against dwarfs? Who, me? No. Some of my best friends would be dwarfs, if I had any friends, I mean. Um, I'm Rincewind. Yeah? Well, I'm short-tempered, said the dwarf. Most people call me mad. Just mad? That's an unusual name. It ain't a name. Rincewind stared. There was no doubt that his captor was a dwarf. He didn't have the traditional beard or iron helmet, but there were other little ways you could tell. There was the chin that you could break coconuts on, the fixed expression of ferocity, and the certain bullet-headedness that meant its owner could go through walls face first. And, of course, if all else failed, the fact that the top of it was about level with Rincewind's stomach was a clue. Mad wore a leather suit, but like the cart, it had metal riveted onto it wherever possible. Where there weren't rivets, there was weaponry. The word friend jumped into the forefront of Rincewind's brain. There are many reasons for being friends with someone. The fact that he's pointing a deadly weapon at you is among the top four. Good description, said Rincewind. Easy to remember. The dwarf cocked his head on one side and listened. Blast, they're catching me up. He looked back up at Rincewind and said, Can you fire a crossbow? In a way that indicated that answering no was a good way to contract immediate sinus trouble. Uh, absolutely, said Rincewind. Get on the cart then. You know, I've been travelling this road for years and this is the first time anyone's ever dared to hitch a lift. Amazing said Rincewind. There was not much room under the hatch, and most of it was taken up by more weapons. Mad pushed Rincewind aside, grasped the reins, peered into the periscope stovepipe, and urged the horses into motion. Bushes scraped up against the wheels, and the horses dragged back onto the track and began to get up speed. Beaut, aren't they? said Mad. They can outrun anything, even with armour. This is certainly a very original cart, said Rincewind. Got a few modifications of my own, said Mad. He grinned evilly. You a wizard, mister? Broadly speaking, yes. Any good? Mad was loading another crossbow. Rincewind hesitated. No, he said. Lucky for you, said Mad. I'd have killed you if you were. Can't stand, wizards. Bunch of wowzers, right? He grasped the handles of the bent stovepipe and swivelled it around. Here they come, he muttered. Rincewind peered over the top of Mad's head. There was a piece of mirror in the bend of the pipe. It showed the road behind and half a dozen dots under another cloud of red dust. Road gang, said Mad, after my cargo. Steal anything they will. All bastards are bastards, but some bastards is bastards. He pulled a handful of nosebags from under the seat. Right, you get up on top with a couple of crossbows and I'll fix the supercharger. What? You you want me to start shooting at people? You want me to start shooting at people? said Mad, pushing him up the ladder. 
Rincewind crawled out onto the top of the cart. It was swaying and bouncing. Red dust choked him and the wind tried to blow his robe over his head. He hated weapons, and not just because they'd so often been aimed at him. You got into more trouble if you had a weapon. People shot you instantly if they thought you were going to shoot them. But if you were unarmed, they often stopped to talk. Admittedly, they tended to say things like, You'll never guess what we're going to do to you, pal. But that took time, and Rincewind could do a lot with a few seconds. He could use them to live longer in. The dots in the distance were other carts, designed for speed rather than cargo. Some had four wheels, some had two. One had just one, a huge one between narrow shafts with a tiny saddle on top. The rider looked as though he'd bought his clothes in the scrap metal yards of three continents, and where they wouldn't fit had strapped on a chicken. But not one as big as the chicken pulling his wheel. It was bigger than Rincewind, and most of what wasn't leg was neck. It was covering the ground as fast as a horse. What the hell's that? he yelled. Emu, shouted Mad, who was now hanging among the harnesses. Try and pick it off. They're a good feed. The cart jolted. Rincewind's hat whirled away into the dust. Now I've lost my hat. Good, bloody awful hat. An arrow twanged off a metal plate by Rincewind's foot. And they're shooting at me. A cart rattled out of the dust. The man beside the driver whirled something around his head. A grapnel bit into the woodwork by Rincewind's other foot and ripped off a metal plate. And there, he began. You got a bow, right? yelled Mad, who was balancing on the back of one of the horses. And find something to hold on to. They're going to go at any minute. The cart had been moving at a gallop, but now it suddenly shot forward and almost jolted Rincewind right off. Smoke poured out of the axles. The landscape blurred. What the hell is that? Supercharger, shouted Mad, pulling himself onto the cart inches from the frantically pounding hooves. Secret recipe. Now hold them off right, because someone's got to steer. The emu emerged from the dust cloud with a few of the faster carts rattling behind it. An arrow buried itself in the cart right between Rincewind's legs. He flung himself flat on the swaying roof, held out the crossbow, shut his eyes and fired. In accordance with ancient narrative practice... The shot ricocheted off someone's helmet and brought down an innocent bird some distance away whose only role was to expire with a suitably humorous squawk. The man driving the emu drew alongside. From under a familiar hat with wizard dimly visible in the grime, he gave Rincewind a grin. Every tooth had been sharpened to a point and the front six had mother engraved on them. G'day! he shouted cheerfully. Hand over your cargo and I promise you you won't be killed all in one go. That's my hat. Give me back my hat. You're a wizard, are you? The man stood up on the saddle, balancing easily as the wheel bounced over the sand. He waved his hands over his head. Look at me, mates. I'm a bloody wizard. Magic, magic, magic. A very heavy arrow, trailing a rope, smashed into the back of the cart and stuck fast. There was a cheer from the riders. You give me back my hat or there'll be trouble. Oh, there's going to be trouble anyways, said the rider, aiming his crossbow. Tell you what, why not turn me into something bad? Oh, I'm all afraid. His face went green. He pitched backwards. The crossbow bolt hit the driver of the cart beside him, which veered wildly into the path of another, which swerved and crashed into a camel. That meant the carts behind were suddenly faced with a pile-up, which, together with the absence of brakes on any vehicle, immediately got bigger. Part of it was kicking people as well. 
Rincewind, hands over his head, watched until the last wheel had rolled away and then walked unsteadily along the swaying cart to where Mad was leaning on the reins. "'Er, uh, I think you can slow down now, Mr. Mad,' he ventured. "'Yeah, killed them all, did you?' "'Er, uh, not all of them. Some of them just ran away.' "'You're kidding me.' The dwarf looked around. "'Stone me, you ain't. Here, pull that lever as hard as you can.' He waved a long metal rod beside Rincewind, who tugged it obediently. Metal screamed as the brakes locked against the wheels. "'Why are they going so fast?' "'It's a mixture of oats and lizard's glands,' shouted Mad against the red-hot squealing. "'Gives them a big jolt!' The cart had to circle for a few minutes until the adrenaline wore off, and then they went back along the track to look at the wreckage. Mad swore again. "'What happened?' "'He shouldn't have stolen my hat,' Rincewind mumbled. The dwarf jumped down and kicked a broken cartwheel. "'You did this to people because they stole your hat?' What do you do if they spit in your eye, blow up the country? It's my hat, said Rincewind sullenly. He wasn't at all sure what had happened. He wasn't any good at magic, that he knew. The only curses of his that stood a chance of working were on the lines of may you get rained on at some time in your life and may you lose some small item despite the fact that you put it there only a moment ago. Going pale green, he looks down, oh yes, and slightly yellow in blotches now, was not the usual effect. Mad wandered purposefully among the wreckage. He picked up a few weapons and tossed them aside. Want the camel? he said. The creature was standing a little way off, eyeing him suspiciously. It looked quite unscathed, having been the cause of considerable scathe in other people. I'd really rather stick my foot in a bacon slicer, said Rincewind. Sure? We'll hitch it onto the cart. It'll fetch a good price and did you bring a beer along, said Mad. He looked at a homemade repeating crossbow, grunted and tossed it aside. Then he looked at another cart and his face brightened. Ah, now we're cooking with charcoal, he said. It's a lucky day, mate. Oh, a bag of hay, said Rincewind. Give us a hand to get it on the wagon, will you? said Mad, unbolting the rear of his own cart. What's so special about hay? The cart opened. It was full of hay. Life or death out here, mate. There's people slit you from here to breakfast for a bale of hay. Man without hay is a man without a horse, and out here a man without a horse is a corpse. Sorry? I went through all of that for a load of hay? Mad waggled his eyebrows conspiratorially. And two sacks of oats in the secret compartment, mate. He slapped Rincewind on the back. And to think I thought you was some backstabbing drongo I ought to toss over the rail. Turns out you're as mad as me. There are times when it does not pay to declare one's sanity, and Rincewind realised that he'd be mad to do so now. Anyway, he could talk to kangaroos and find cheese and chutney rolls in the desert. There were times when you had to look wobbly facts in the face. Mental as anything, he said, with what he hoped was disarming modesty. Good bloke. Let's load up their weapons and grub and get going. What do we want their weapons for? Fetch a good price. And what about the bodies? Nah, worthless. While Mad was nailing salvaged bits of scrap metal to his cart, Rincewind sidled over to the green and yellow corpse, and, oh yes, large black areas now, and using a stick, levered his hat from its head. A small eight-legged ball of angry black fur sprang out and locked its fangs onto the stick, which began to smoulder. 
He put it down very carefully, grabbed the hat and ran. Ponder sighed. I wasn't questioning your authority, Arch-Chancellor, he said. I just feel that if a huge monster evolves into a chicken right in front of you, the considered response should not be to eat the chicken. The Arch-Chancellor licked his fingers. Uh, what would you have done then, he said. Well, studied it, said Ponder. So did we. Post-mortem examination, said the Dean. Minutely, said the Chair of Indefinite Studies happily. He belched. Mm, pardon me, Mrs. Whitlow. Will you have a little more br... He caught Ridcully's steely glance and went on. Front part of the chicken, Mrs. Whitlow? And we've discovered that it'll no longer be any menace to visiting wizards, said Ridcully. It's just that I think proper research should involve more than having a look to see if you can find a sage and onion bush, said Ponder. You saw how quickly it changed, didn't you? Well, said the Dean, that can't be natural. You're the one who says things naturally change into other things, Mr. Stibbons. But not that fast. Have you ever seen any of this evolution happening? Well, of course not. No one has ever "'Well, there you are, then,' said Ridcully, in a closing-the-argument voice. "'That might be the normal speed. "'As I said, it makes perfect sense. "'There's no point in turning into a bird a bit at a time, is there? "'A feather here, a beak there. "'You'd see some damn stupid creatures wandering around, hmm, eh?' "'The other wizards laughed. "'Our monster probably simply thought, "'Oh, there's too many of them. "'Perhaps I'd better turn into something they'd like.' "'Enjoy,' said the dean. Sensible survival strategy, said Ridcully, up to a point. Ponder rolled his eyes. These things always sounded fine when he worked them out in his head. He'd read some of the old books and sit and think for ages, and a little theory would put itself together in his head in a row of little shiny blocks, and then when he let it out, it'd run straight into the faculty, and one of them, one of them, would always ask some bloody stupid question which he couldn't quite answer at the moment. How could you ever make any progress against minds like that? If some god somewhere had said, let there be light, they'd be the ones to say things like, why, the darkness has always been good enough for us. Old men, that was the trouble. Ponder was not totally enthusiastic about the old traditions because he was well into his twenties, and in a moderately important position, and therefore to some of the mere striplings in the university, a target. Or would have been, if they weren't getting that boiled eyeball feeling by sitting up all night tinkering with Hex. He wasn't interested in promotion anyway. He'd just be happy if people listened for five minutes instead of saying, ''Well done, Mr Stibbons, but we tried that once, and it doesn't work.'' or we probably haven't got the funding, or, worst of all, you don't get proper fill-in nouns these days. Remember old nickname Ancient Wizard who died fifty years ago who Ponder wouldn't possibly be able to remember? Now there was a chap who knew his fill-in nouns. Above Ponder, he felt, were a lot of dead men's shoes, and they had living men's feet in them, and were stamping down hard. They never bothered to learn anything. They never bothered to remember anything apart from how much better things used to be. They bickered like a lot of children, and the only one who ever said anything sensible said it in orangutan. He prodded the fire viciously. The wizards had made Mrs. Whitlow a polite rude hut out of branches and big woven leaves. 
She bade them good night and demurely pulled some leaves across the entrance behind her. A very respectable lady, Mrs. Whitlow, said Ridcully. Oh, I think I'll turn in myself too. There were already one or two sets of snores building up around the fire. I think someone ought to stand guard, said Ponder. Good man, muttered Ridcully, turning over. Ponder gritted his teeth and turned to the librarian, who was temporarily back in the land of the bipedal and was sitting gloomily wrapped in a blanket. At least I expect this is a home from home for you, eh, sir? The librarian shook his head. Would you be interested in hearing what else is odd about this place? said Ponder. Ook? The driftwood. No one listens to me, but it's important. We must have dragged loads of stuff for the fire, and it's all natural timber. Do you notice that? No bits of plank, no old crates, no tatty old sandals, just ordinary wood. Ook? That means we must be a long way off the normal shipping lot. Oh, no, don't. The librarian wrinkled his nose desperately. Quickly, concentrate on having arms and legs. I mean living ones. The librarian nodded miserably and sneezed. Oh, he said, when his shape had settled down again. Well, said Ponder sadly, at least you're animate. Possibly rather large for a penguin, though. I think it's your body's survival strategy. It keeps trying to find a stable shape that works. Oh, Funny it can't seem to do anything about the red hair. The librarian glared at him, shuffled a little way along the beach, and sagged into a heap. Ponder looked around the fire. He seemed to be the man on watch, if only because no one else intended to do it. Well, wasn't that a surprise? Things twittered in the trees. Phosphorescence glimmered on the sea. The stars were coming out. He looked up at the stars. At least you could depend... And suddenly... He saw what else was wrong. <gasps> Arch-Chancellor! So, how long have you been mad? No, not a good start, really. It was quite hard to know how to open the conversation. So, I didn't expect dwarfs here, Rincewind said. Oh, the family blew in from No Thingfjord when I was a kid, said Mad. Meant to go down the coast a bit, storm got up. Next thing we shipwrecked and up to our knees in parrots. Best thing that could have happened. Back there I'd be down some freezing cold mine, picking bits of rock out of the walls. But over here, a dwarf can stand tall. Really, said Rincewind, his face carefully blank. But not too bloody tall, Mad went on. Uh, certainly not. So, we settled down and now my dad's got a chain of bakeries in Bugger Up. Dwarf bread, said Rincewind. Too right. That's what kept us going across thousands of miles of shark-infested ocean, said Mad. If we hadn't had that sack of dwarf bread, we'd never have been able to club the sharks to death, said Rincewind. Ah, you're a man who knows your breads. Big place, bugger up. Has it got a harbour? People say so. Never been back there. I like the outdoor life. The ground trembled. The trees by the track shook, even though there was no wind. Sounds like a storm, said Rincewind. What's one of them? You know, said Rincewind, rain. Oh, strain the flaming cows, you don't believe all that stuff, do you? My granddad used to go on about that when he'd been at the beer. It's just an old story. Water falling out of the sky. 
do me a favour? Well, it, it never does that here. Course not. Happens quite a lot where I come from, said Rincewind. Yeah? How's it get up into the sky, then? Water's heavy. Oh, it, 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 uh, I think the sun sucks it up or something. How? I don't know. It just happens. And then it drops out of the sky? Yes. For free? Haven't you ever seen rain? Look, everyone knows all the water's deep underground. That's only sense. It's heavy stuff. It leaks down. I've never seen it floating around in the air, mate. <laughs> well, how do you think it got on the ground in the first place? Mad looked astonished. How do mountains get in the ground, he said. What? Well, they're just there. Oh, so they don't drop out of the sky. Of course not. They're much heavier than air. And water isn't? I've got a couple of drums of it under the cart and you'd sweat to lift them. Aren't there any rivers here? Course we got rivers. This country's got everything, mate. Well, how do you think the water gets into them? Mad looked genuinely puzzled. What do we want water in the rivers for? What did it do? Uh, flow out to the sea? Bloody waste. That's what you let it do where you come from, is it? You don't let it. It, it, it happens. It's what rivers do. Mad gave Rincewind a long, hard look. Yep. And they call me mad, he said. Rincewind gave up. There wasn't a cloud in the sky, but the ground shook again. Arch-Chancellor Ridcully glared at the sky as if it was doing this to upset him personally. What? Not one, he said. Technically, not a single familiar constellation, said the chair of indefinite studies frantically. We've counted 3,191 constellations that could be called the Triangle, for example, but the Dean says some of them don't count because they use the same stars. There's not a single star I recognise, said the senior wrangler. Ridcully waved his hands in the air. They change a bit all the time, he said. The turtle swims through space and... Not this fast, said the dean. The dishevelled wizards looked up at the rapidly crowding night. Discworld constellations changed frequently as the world moved through the void which meant that astrology was cutting-edge research rather than, as elsewhere, a clever way of avoiding a proper job. It was amazing how human traits and affairs could so reliably and continuously be guided by a succession of big balls of plasma billions of miles away, most of whom have never even heard of humanity. "'We're marooned on some other world,' moaned the senior wrangler. "'Er, uh, I don't think so,' said Ponder. You've got a better suggestion, I suppose. Er, uh, you see that big patch of stars over there? The wizards looked at the large cluster twinkling near the horizon. Very pretty, said Ridcully. Well? I think it's what we call the small, boring group of faint stars. It's about the right shape, said Ponder. And I know what you're going to say, sir. You're going to say, but they're just a blob in the sky, not a patch on the blobs we used to get, sir. But, you see, that's what they might have looked like when Great Artuin was much closer to them thousands of years ago. In other words, sir... Ponder drew a deep breath. 
in dread of everything that was to come. I think we've travelled backwards in time for thousands of years. And that was the other side of the odd thing about wizards. While they were quite capable of spending half an hour arguing that it could not possibly be Tuesday, they'd take the outrageous in their pointy-shoed stride. The senior wrangler even looked relieved. Oh, is that it? he said. Bound to happen eventually, said the dean. It's not written down anywhere that these holes connect to the same time after all. Hmm, going to make getting back a bit tricky, said Ridcully. Eh, uh, Ponder began, it might not be so simple as that, Arch-Chancellor. You mean as, as simple as finding a way to move through time and space? I mean there might not be any there to go back to, said Ponder. He shut his eyes. This was going to be difficult, he knew it. Of course there is, said Ridcully. We were only there this morning, only yesterday. That is to say, yesterday, thousands of years in the future, naturally. But if we're not careful, we might alter the future, you see, said Ponder. The mere presence of us in the past might alter the future. We might already have altered history. It's vital that I tell you this. He's got a point, Ridcully, said the dean. Was there any of that rum left, by the way? Well, uh, there isn't any history happening here, said Ridcully. It's just an odd little island. I'm afraid tiny actions anywhere in the world may have huge ramifications, sir, said Ponder. Oh, well, we certainly don't want any ramifications. Well, what's your point? What do you advise? It had been going so well, they almost seemed up to speed. This may have been what caused Ponder to act like the man who, having so far fallen a hundred feet without any harm, believes that the last few inches to the ground will be a mere formality. To use the classic metaphor, the important thing is not to kill your own grandfather, he said, and smacked into the bedrock. What the hell would I want to do that for? said Ridcully. I quite liked the old boy. No, of course, I mean accidentally, said Ponder. But in any case, really? Well, as you know, I accidentally kill people every day, said Ridcully. Anyway, I don't see him around. It's just an illustration, sir. The problem is cause and effect. And the point it The point, Mr. Stibbins, is that you suddenly seem to think everyone comes over all fratricidal when they go back in time. Now, if I'd met my grandfather, I'd buy him a drink and tell him not to assume that snakes won't bite if you shout at them in a loud voice. Information which he might come to thank me for in later life. Why? said Ponder. Because he would have some later life, said Ridcully. No, sir, no, that'd be worse than shooting him. It would? Yes, sir. I think there may be one or two steps in your logic that I have failed to grasp, Mr. Stibbons, said the Arch-Chancellor coldly. I suppose you're not intending to shoot your own grandfather by any chance? Of course not, snapped Ponder. I don't even know what he looked like. He died before I was born. Aha! Uh -huh. I didn't mean... Look, we're a lot further back in time than that, said the dean. Thousands of years, he says. No one's grandfather is alive. That's a lucky escape for Mr. Stibbons Sr., then, said Ridcully. No, sir, said Ponder. Please, what I was trying to get across, sir, is that anything you do in the past changes the future. 
The tiniest little actions can have huge consequences. You might tread on an ant now, and it might entirely prevent someone from being born in the future. Really? said Ridcully. Yes, sir. Ridcully brightened up. That's not a bad wheeze. There's one or two people history could do without. Any idea um, how we can find the right ants? No, sir. Ponder struggled to find a crack in his Arch-Chancellor's brain into which could be inserted the crowbar of understanding and for a few vain seconds thought he had found one. Because the ant you tread on might be your own, sir. You mean I might tread on an ant and this would affect history and I wouldn't be born? Yes, yes, that's it, that's right, sir. How? Ridcully looked puzzled. I'm not descended from ants. Because, Ponder felt the sea of mutual incomprehension rising around him, but he refused to drown. Well, um, well, supposing it bit a man's horse, and he fell off, and he was carrying a very important message, and because he didn't get there in time, there was a terrible battle, and one of your ancestors got killed. No, sorry, I mean, didn't get killed. Uh, how did this ant get across the sea? said Ridcully. Clung to a piece of driftwood, said the dean promptly. It's amazing what can get even onto the remotest island by clinging to driftwood. Insects, lizards, even small mammals. And then got up the beach and all the way to this battle, said Ridcully. Bird's leg, said the dean. Read it in a book. Even fish eggs get transported from pond to pond. "'on a bird's leg. "'Pretty determined ant, then, really,' said Ridcully, stroking his beard. "'Still, hmm, I must admit, stranger things have happened.' "'Practically every day,' said the senior wrangler. "'Ponder beamed. "'They had successfully negotiated an extended metaphor. "'Only one thing I don't understand, though,' Ridcully added. "'Who'll tread on the ant?' "'What?' "'Well, it's obvious, isn't it?' said the Arch-Chancellor. "'If I tread on this ant, then I won't exist. "'But if I don't exist, then I can't have done it. "'So I won't. So I will. See?' He prodded Ponder with a large, good-natured finger. "'You've got some... some brains, Mr. Stibbons, "'but sometimes I wonder if you really try to apply logical thought "'to the subject in hand. "'Things that happen stay happened.' It stands to reason. Oh, don't look so downcast, he said, mistaking possibly innocently Ponder's expression of futile rage for shameful dismay. If you get stuck with any of this complicated stuff, my door's always open. I am your Arch-Chancellor, after all. There's a certain type of manager who is known by his call of My door is always open and it is probably a good idea to beat yourself to death with your own CV rather than work for him. In Ridcully's case, however, he meant, my door is always open because then, when I'm bored, I can fire my crossbow right across the hall and into the target just above the bursar's desk. Excuse me, can we uh, tread on ants or not? said the senior wrangler peevishly. If you like... Ridcully swelled with generosity, because, in fact, history already depends on your treading on any ants that you happen to step on. Any ants you tread on, you've already trodden on. 
So if you do it again, it'll be for the first time, because you're doing it now, because you did it then, which is also now. Really? Yes, indeed. So we should have worn bigger boots, said the bursar. Try to keep up, bursar. Ridcully stretched and yawned. Well, that seems to be it, he said. Let's try to get back to sleep, shall we? It's been a rather long day. Someone was keeping up. After the wizards got back to sleep, a faint light, like burning marsh gas, circled over them. He was an omnipresent god, although only in a small area, and he was omnicognizant, but just enough to know that while he did indeed know everything, it wasn't the whole everything, just the part of it, that applied to his island. Damn! He'd told himself the cigarette tree would cause trouble. He should have stopped it the moment it started growing. He'd never meant it to get out of hand like this. Of course, it had been a shame about the other pointy creature, but it hadn't been his fault, had it? Everything had to eat. Some of the things that were turning up on the island were surprising even him, and some of them never stayed stable for five minutes together. Even so, he allowed himself a little smirk of pride. Two hours between the one called the Dean dying for a smoke and the bush evolving, growing and fruiting its first nicotine-laden crop, that was evolution in action. Trouble was, now they'd start poking around and asking questions. The god, almost alone among gods, thought questions were a good thing. He was, in fact, committed to people questioning assumptions, throwing aside old superstitions, breaking the shackles of irrational prejudice, and, in short, exercising the brains their god had given them, except, of course, they hadn't been given them by any god, Lord knows. So what they really ought to do was exercise those brains developed over millennia in response to the external stimuli and the need to control those hands with their opposable thumbs. Another damn good idea that he was very proud of. Or would have been, of course, if he existed. However, there were limits. Freethinkers were fine people, but they shouldn't go around thinking just anything. The light vanished and reappeared, still circling in the sacred cave on the mountain. Technically, he knew, it wasn't in fact sacred, since you needed believers to make a place sacred, and this god didn't actually want believers. Usually, a god with no believers was as powerful as a feather in a hurricane, but for some reason he'd not been able to fathom, he was able to function quite happily without them. It may have been because he believed so fervently in himself. Well, obviously not in himself, because belief in gods was irrational, but he did believe in what he did. He considered rather guiltily making a few more thunder lizards in the hope that they might eat the intruders before they got too nosy, but then dismissed the thought as being unworthy of a modern, forward-thinking deity. There were racks and racks of seeds in this part of the cave. He selected one from among the pumpkin family and picked up his tools. These were unique. Absolutely no one else in the world had a screwdriver that small. A green shoot speared up from the forest litter in response to the first light of dawn, unfolded into two leaves and went on growing. Down among the rich compost of fallen leaves, white shoots writhed like worms. This was no time for half measures. Somewhere far down, a questing taproot found water. After a few minutes, the bushes around the by now large and moving plant began to wilt. The lead shoot dragged itself onwards towards the sea. 
Tendrils just behind the advancing stem wound around handy branches. Larger trees were used as support. Bushes were uprooted and tossed aside and a taproot sprouted to take possession of the newly vacated hole. The god hadn't had much time for sophistication. The plant's instructions had been put together from bits and pieces lying around, things he knew would work. At last, the first shoot crossed the beach and reached the sea. Roots drove into the sand, leaves unfolded, and the plant sprouted one solitary female flower. Small male ones had already opened along the stem. The god hadn't programmed this bit. The whole problem with evolution, he told himself, was that it wouldn't obey orders. Sometimes matter thinks for itself. A thin, prehensile tendril bunched itself for a moment, then sprang up and lassoed a passing moth. It curved back, dipped the terrified insect waist-deep in the pollen of a male flower, then coiled back with whiplash speed and slam-dunked it into the embracing petals of the female. A few seconds later the flower dropped off and the small green ball below it began to swell, just as the horizon began to blush with the dawn. Argo Nauticae Unico was ready to produce its first and only fruit. There was a huge windmill squeaking around on top of a metal tower. A sign attached to the tower read, Did you bring a beer along? Check your weapons. Yep, still got all mine. No worries, said Mad, urging the horses forward. They crossed a wooden bridge, although Rincewind couldn't see why anyone had bothered to build it. It seemed a lot of effort just across a stretch of dry sand. Sand, said Mad. That's the Lassitude River, that is. And indeed, a small boat went past. It was being towed by a camel and was making quite good time on its four wide wheels. A boat, said Rincewind. Never seen one before. Not being pedalled, no, said Rincewind as a tiny canoe went past. They'd hoist the sail if the wind was right. But um, this might sound a strange question. Why is it a boat shape? It's the shape boats are. Oh, right. I thought it'd be a good reason like that. Um, how did the camels get here? They cling to driftwood, people say. The currents wash a lot of stuff up down the coast. Did you bring a beer along was coming into view. It was just as well there had been a sign, otherwise they might have ridden through it without noticing. The architecture was what is known professionally as vernacular, a word used in another field to mean swearing, and this was quite appropriate. But then Rincewind thought, it's as hot as hell and it never rains. All you need a house for is to mark some kind of boundary between inside and outside. You said this was a big town, he said. It's got a whole street and a pub. Oh, that's a street, is it? And that log pile is a, is a pub? You'll like it. It's run by Crocodile. Why do they call him Crocodile? A night sleeping on the sand hadn't helped the faculty very much, and the Arch-Chancellor didn't help even more. He was an early morning man, as well as being, most unfairly, a late-night man. Sometimes he went from one to the other without sleeping in between. Oh, wake up, you fellows. Who's game for a brisk trot around the island? There'll be a small prize for the winner, hmm? Oh, my gods, moaned the dean, rolling over. He's doing press-ups. I certainly wouldn't want anyone to think I'm advocating a return to the bad old days, said the chair of indefinite studies, trying to dislodge some sand from his ear. But once upon a time... 
We used to kill wizards like him. Yes, but we also used to kill wizards like us, Chair, said the Dean. Remember what we'd say in those days, said the senior wrangler. Never trust a wizard over sixty-five. Whatever happened? We got past the age of sixty-five, senior wrangler. Ah, yes, and it turned out that we were trustworthy after all. Good thing we found out in time, eh? There's a crab climbing that tree, said the lecturer in recent runes, who was lying on his back and staring straight upwards. An actual crab. Yes, said the senior wrangler. They're called tree-climbing crabs. Why? I had this book when I was a little lad, said the chair of indefinite studies. It was about this man who was shipwrecked on an island such as this, and he thought he was all alone, and then one day he found a footprint in the sand. There was a woodcut, he added. One footprint, said the dean, sitting up, clutching his head. Well, yes, and when he saw it, he knew that he was alone on an island with a crazed one-legged long-jump champion, said the dean. He was feeling testy. Well, obviously he found some other footprints later on. I wish I was on a desert island all alone, said the senior wrangler gloomily, watching Ridcully running on the spot. Is it just me? the dean asked, or are we marooned thousands of miles and thousands of years from home? Yes, I thought so. Is there any breakfast? Stibbons found some soft-boiled eggs. What a useful young man he is, the dean groaned. Where did he find them? On a tree. Bits of last night came back to the dean. A soft-boiled egg tree. "'Yes,' said the senior wrangler. "'Nicely runny. "'They're quite good with breadfruit soldiers. "'You'll be telling me next he found a spoon tree.' "'Of course not. "'Good.' "'It's a bush.' "'The senior wrangler held up a small wooden spoon. "'It had a few small leaves still attached to it. "'A bush that fruits spoons.' "'Young Stibbons said it makes perfect sense, Dean. "'After all, he said, we'd pick them because they're useful "'and then spoons are always getting lost. "'Then he burst into tears. "'He's got a point, though. "'Honestly, this place is like Big Rock Candy Mountain.' "'I vote we leave it as soon as possible,' said the Chair of Indefinite Studies. "'We'd better have a serious look at this boat idea today. "'I don't want to meet another of those horrible lizards.' One of everything, remember? Then probably there's a worse one. Building some sort of boat can't be very hard, said the Chair of Indefinite Studies. Even quite primitive people manage it. Now look, snapped the Dean. We've searched everywhere for a decent library on this island. There simply isn't one. It's ridiculous. How is anyone supposed to get anything done? I suppose we could... Try things, said the senior wrangler. You know, see what floats, that sort of thing. Oh, well, if you want to be crude about it. The chair of indefinite studies looked at the dean's face and decided it was time to lighten the atmosphere. I was, aha, uh -huh, just wondering, he said, as a little mental exercise, if you were marooned on a desert island, uh, eh, dean, what kind of music... Would you like to listen to, eh?
The dean's face clouded further. I think, Chair, that I would like to listen to the music in the Ankh-Morpork Opera House. Ah, oh, yes, well, a very, very, very direct thinking there, Dean. Rincewind grinned glassily. So, um, you're a crocodile, then? If worrying you, said the barman. No, no, don't they call you anything else, though? Well, they have a nickname they gave me. Oh, yes? Yeah. Crocodile, crocodile. But in here, most people call me Dongo. And uh, this stuff, uh, what do you call this? We call it beer, said the crocodile. What do you call it? The barman wore a grubby shirt and a pair of shorts, and until he'd seen a pair of shorts tailored for someone with very short legs and a very long tail, Rincewind hadn't realised what a difficult job tailoring must be. Rincewind held the beer glass up to the light, and that was the point. You could see light all the way through it. Clear beer. Ankh-Morpork beer was technically ale, that is to say gravy made from hops. It had texture. It had flavour, even if you didn't always want to know what of. It had... Body. It had dregs. You could eat the last half-inch of it with a spoon. This stuff was thin and sparkly and looked as though someone had already drunk it. Tasted all right, though. Didn't sit on your stomach the way the beer at home did. Weak stuff, of course. But it never did to insult someone else's beer. Mmm, pretty good, he said. Where'd you blowing from? Er, uh, I floated here on a piece of driftwood. Was there room with all the camels? Er, uh, yes. Good on ya. Rincewind needed a map, not a geographical map, although one of those would be a help, but one that showed him where his head was at. You didn't usually get crocodiles serving behind a bar, but everyone else in this cavern of a place seemed to think it was perfectly normal. Mind you, the people in the bar included three sheep in overalls and a couple of kangaroos playing darts. And they weren't exactly sheep. They looked more like, well, human sheep. Sticking out ears, white curls, a definite sheepish look, but standing upright with hands. And he was pretty sure that there was no way you could get a cross between a human and a sheep. If there was, people would definitely have found out by now, especially in the more isolated rural districts. Something similar had happened with the kangaroos, there were the pointy ears, and they definitely had snouts, but now they were leaning on the bar drinking this thin, strange beer. One of them was wearing a stained vest with the legend, Wagger Hay, it's the rye grass just visible under the dirt. In short, Rincewind had the feeling he wasn't looking at animals at all. He took another sip of the beer. He couldn't raise the subject with Crocodile Dongo. There was a philosophical wrongness about drawing a crocodile's attention to the fact that there were a couple of kangaroos in the bar. "'Yous want another beer?' said Dongo. "'Yeah, right,' said Rincewind. "'He looked at the sign on the beer pump. "'It was a picture of a grinning kangaroo. "'The label said, Roo Beer.' "'He raised his eyes to a torn poster on the wall. "'It also advertised Roo Beer. "'There was the same kangaroo holding a pint of said beer "'and wearing the same knowing grin. "'It looked familiar for some reason.' I can't help noticing, he tried again, I can't help noticing, he said, that some people 
in this bar a different chap from other people. Well, old Hollowlock Joe over there put on a bit weight lately, said Dongo, polishing a glass. Rincewind looked down at his legs. Whose legs are these? You okay, Mifter? Probably been bitten by something, said Rincewind. A sudden urgent need gripped him. He out the back, said Dongo. Out back in the outback, said Rincewind, staggering forward. <laughs> he walked into an iron pillar, which picked him up in a fist and held him at arm's length. He looked along the arm to a large, angry face and an expression that said a lot of beer was looking for a fight, and the rest of the body was happy to go along with it. Rincewind was muzzily aware that in this case a lot of beer wanted to run away, and at a time like this it's always the beer talking. "'I've been listening to you. "'Where are you from, mister?' said the giant's beer. "'Unk uh, Morpork. "'At a time like this, why lie?' "'The bar went quiet. "'And you're going to come here and make a lot of cracks "'about us all drinking beer and fighting and talking funny, right?' "'Some of Rincewind's beer said, "'No worries.' "'His captor pulled him so they were face to face.' Rincewind had never seen such a huge nose. And I expect you don't even know that we happen to produce some particularly fine wines. Our Chardonnay's been specially worthy of attention and competitively priced, not to mention the rich, firmly structured, rusty, Dunny Valley Similians, which are a tangily refreshing discovery for the connoisseur, you bastard. Um, uh, uh, jolly good. I I'll have a pint of Chardonnay, please. You taking a piss? N no, I I'd like to leave it here. How about you putting my mate down? Said a voice. Mad was in the doorway. There was a general scuffle to get out of the way. Oh, you looking for a fight too, Stubby? Rincewind was dropped as the huge creature turned to face the dwarf, fists clenching. I don't look for them. I just walk into pubs and there they are, said Mad, pulling out a knife. Now, you gonna leave him alone, Wally? You call that a knife? The giant unsheathed one that would be called a sword if it had been held in a normal-sized hand. This is what I call a knife. Mad looked at it, then he reached his hand around behind his back, and it came back holding something. Really? No worries. This, he said, is what I call a crossbow. Um, it's a log, said Ridcully, inspecting the boat building committee's work to date. Rather more than a log, the dean began. Oh, oh, you've, you've made a mast and tied the bursar's bathrobe to it, I can see that. It's a log, dean. There's roots on one end and bits of branch at the other. You haven't even hollowed it out. It's a log. It took us all hours, said the senior wrangler. And it does float, the dean pointed out. I think the term is more like wallows, said Ridcully, and we'd all get on it, would we? This is the one-man version, 
said the dean. We thought we'd test it out, and then try it with a lot of them together. Oh, like a raft, you mean? I suppose so, said the dean, with considerable reluctance. He would have preferred a more dynamic name for it. Obviously, these things take time. The arch-chancellor nodded. He was impressed in a strange way. The wizards had succeeded in recapitulating in a mere day a technological development that had probably taken mankind several hundred years. They might be up to coracles by Tuesday. Er, uh, which of you is going to test it? he said. Er, uh, we thought perhaps the bursar could assist at this point in the development programme. Volunteered, has he? We are sure he will. In fact, the bursar was some distance away, wandering aimlessly but happily through the beetle-filled jungle. The bursar was, as he would probably be the first to admit, not the most mentally stable of people. He would probably be the first to admit that he was a tea-strainer. But he was, as it were, only insane on the outside. He'd never been very interested in magic as a boy, but he had been good at numbers, and even somewhere like Unseen University needed someone who could add up and he had indeed survived many otherwise exciting years by locking himself in a room somewhere and conscientiously adding up, while some very serious division and subtraction was going on outside. Those were still the days when magical assassination was still a preferred and legal route to high office, but he'd been quite safe because no one had wanted to be a bursar. Then Mustrum Ridcully had been appointed, and he'd put a stop to the whole business by being unkillable, and had been, in his own strange way, a moderniser, and the senior wizards had gone along with him because he tended to shout at them if they didn't, and it was, after some exhilarating times in the university's history, something of a relief to enjoy your dinner without having to watch someone else eat a bit of it first, or having to check your shape the moment you got out of bed. But it was hell for the bursar. Everything about Mustrum Ridcully rasped across his nerves. If people were food, the bursar would have been one of life's lightly poached eggs, but Mustrum Ridcully was a rich suet pudding with garlic gravy. He spoke as loudly as most people shouted. He stamped instead of walking. He roared around the place and lost important bits of paper which he then denied he'd ever seen and shot his crossbow at the wall when he was bored. He was aggressively cheerful. Never sick himself, he tended to the belief that sickness in other people was caused by sloppy thinking. And he had no sense of humour. And... He told jokes. It was odd that this affected the bursar so much, since he did not have a sense of humour either. He was proud of it. He was not the kind of man to laugh, but he did know, in a mechanical sort of way, how jokes were supposed to go. Ridcully told jokes like a bullfrog did accountancy. They never added up. So the bursar found it much more satisfying to live inside his own head, where he didn't have to listen, and where there were clouds and flowers. Even so, something must have filtered in from the world outside because occasionally he'd jump up and down on an ant, just in case he was supposed to. Part of him rather hoped that one of the ants was, in some unimaginably distant way, related to Mustrum Ridcully. It was while he was thus engaged in changing the future that he noticed what looked like a very thick green hosepipe on the ground. Ooh! It was slightly transparent and seemed to be pulsating rhythmically. When he put his ear to it, he heard a sound like... Gulp. Mildly deranged though he was, the bursar had the true wizard's instinct to amble aimlessly into dangerous places, so he followed the throbbing stem.
Rincewind awoke, because sleep was so hard with someone kicking him in the ribs. Blizzard. You want I should pour a bucket of water on yous? Rincewind recognised the chatty tones. His eyes unglued. Oh, not you. You're a figment of my imagination. I should kick you in the ribs again, then, said Scrappy. Rincewind pulled himself upright. It was dawn, and he was lying in some bushes out behind the pub. Memory played its silent movie across the tattered sheets of his eyelids. There was a fight. Mad shot that... that shot him with a crossbow. Only through the foot so he'd stand still to be hit. Wombats can't hold their drink, that's their trouble. More recollections flickered across the smoky darkness of Rincewind's brain. That's right, there were animals drinking in there. Yes and no, said the kangaroo. I tried to explain. I'm all ears, said Rincewind. His eyes glazed for a moment. No, I'm not. I'm all bladder. Back in a minute. The buzz of flies and a sort of universal smell drew Rincewind into a nearby hut. Some people would have liked to think of it as the bathroom, although not after going inside. He came out again, hopping up and down urgently. Uh, there's a great big spider on the toilet seat. What you gonna do? Wait till it's finished? Fan it with your hat. It was odd, Rincewind thought as he shooed the spider out, that a human being would, um, use the bathroom behind a bush in the middle of a thousand miles of howling wilderness, but would fight for a dunny if there was one available. And stay out, he muttered, when he was confident the spider was out of earshot. But the human brain often feels incapable of concentrating on the job in hand, and Rincewind found his gaze wandering. And here, as in private places everywhere, men had found the urge to draw on the walls. Perhaps it was the way the light hit the ancient woodwork, but under the usual minutiae from people who needed people, and drawings done from overheated hope rather than memory, was a deeply scored drawing of men in pointy hats. He sidled out thoughtfully and edged away through the bushes. No worries, said the kangaroo, so close to his ear that Rincewind was quite pleased that he'd already relieved himself. I don't believe it. You'll see them everywhere. They're built in. They find their way into people's thoughts. You can't outrun your destiny, mate. 